it seems that occasionally we get to welcome an educational icon onto our leader chat. As you are sure to enjoy, Jeff gets the chance to sit and talk with the infamous Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond. She's incredible. She and Jeff talk about reinventing schools, new design principles for schools, preparing teachers for deeper learning, and some overall advice that she has for educational leaders. If you love this conversation as much as we did, please let us know by rating our podcast. We appreciate you and enjoy this leader chat as much as we know you will. Educators, leaders, welcome. Welcome to Leader Chat today. I am Jeff Rose and um, I'm excited. In fact, I'm going to go really fast here at the beginning because I'm going to use every minute I can of this upcoming discussion. You are in for a treat. I am in for a treat in today's discourse. And I want to remind the people that are listening, we have our Leadership Circle members that have the opportunities to watch um, this video, which is accessible to them. And we have listeners who will be hearing this via our podcast um, edition that will be posted here very, very shortly. And so once again, the content of this really comes down to weighing what we know our members, our districts, our district leaders are struggling through and how we go find and mine the best content that we can find, which is getting leaders in to come and provide pragmatic discourse on your behalf. So ladies and gentlemen, I am going to go and jump in quickly because today I'm actually fairly nervous because I'm talking to a little bit of a, a rock star, an icon for me, and probably for you too. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond. I did say that correctly. Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond. Let me read to you her bio. Now, Linda Darling-Hammond is currently a professor of education at Stanford University, where she founded the Stanford Center for Opportunity Policy and Education which conducts research and policy analysis on issues affecting educational equity and opportunity, including curriculum, assessment, and teaching policy and practices. She has also founded the School Redesign Network and the Stanford Educational Leadership Institute and served as a faculty sponsor of the Stanford Teacher Education Program, which she helped redesign. From 1994 to 2001, she was the executive director of the National Commission on Teaching in America's Future, whose 1996 report, What Matters Most, Teaching for America's Future, led to sweeping policy changes affecting the teaching and schooling and was named as one of the most influential reports affecting U.S. education. In 2006, Darling Hammond was named as one of the nation's 10 most influential people affecting educational policy over the past decade. And in 2008, she served as the leader of President Barack Obama's educational policy transition team. Among Darling Hammond's more than 400, yes, 400 publications are The Flat World and Education, How America's Commitment to Equity Will Determine Our Future, Preparing Teachers for a Changing World, What Teachers Should Learn and Be Able to Do, Powerful Teaching Education, Lessons from Exemplary Programs. I'm stopping there because there are 400 of them. Darling Hammond received her BA from Yale University, and her doctorate in urban education from Temple University. She holds honorary degrees from 14 universities in the United States and abroad, and has received numerous awards for her contributions to research, policy, and practice. So let me welcome to the screen 
Linda Darling-Hammond, and I will refer to you as Linda. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I really appreciate you. And after reading your bio, um, I guess my first question will be, number one, what do you think I missed? Because I, I did have to shorten it. You've, you've done a lot of incredible work. And maybe just tell us how you're doing, specific to maybe maybe the last couple of years. We've all experienced a pretty tremendous shift. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to see you. It's great to be with you. And with all the leaders across the world who are doing work in education, I have so much respect for everybody who is in schools and classrooms right now, uh, where you know the school has become really the hub of the community, of the families. I think, you know, uh, educators are doing extraordinary heroic work right now. Um, in the last few years, I'll just update a little bit. Um, I founded something called the Learning Policy Institute, which is an organization that really tries to understand what we know about learning around school organizations, around how to do education well and carry it into policy because we've had such a divide between policy and teaching and learning in recent decades, really. Feels to me like the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, there's like all this knowledge on one side, wisdom of practice and wisdom from research. There's policy on the other side, which is doing very different things that people have to defend themselves against sometimes. And we're trying to build a bridge between these two across the Grand Canyon and carry what we really know about learning into uh, policy and practice. And, we are working at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level doing that. Um, I did lead President Biden's transition team in uh, 2020, I guess that was. Uh, and um, so uh, we're off to a uh, different sort of start, I think, in this administration uh, with respect to the nature of federal policy and the way in which I think there's much more of a whole child perspective on what needs to be done and uh, a perspective around investing in schools rather than beating up on them. So uh, that's kind of a little update uh, to bring us to where we are now. And I think there's just a lot hanging in the balance right now. I, I appreciate that you talk about this kind of chasm between policy and sometimes the day-to-day -day real practice of school districts because um, that does, uh, for the practitioner and the leader, does feel like sometimes this, you know, just this vast kind of Grand Canyon, so to speak, between the two. And you mentioned the hub, you know, school districts mm -hmm. right, being the hub. In some ways, it's interesting. There's like pros and cons of that, isn't it? In that yeah. there's a, obviously that's what we would hope for. The dilemma is the amount of political um, challenge that's creating for leaders and districts is something I think many educators, including leaders, just didn't sign up for. Um, yeah, you must see a lot of that. Yeah, <clears throat> well, especially right now. I mean, we're this this very moment. It feels like you know many many districts are caught sort of in a culture war, as they're trying to create schools that are safe for uh, opening and and maintaining opening in the COVID uh, pandemic. And you know, you've got parents and other fact you know other factions uh, that are you know kind of pushing back against safe practices. You've got the sort of wars around critical race theory and, you know, how do we think about dealing with issues of race, racism, uh, inequality in our schools. Um, discourse has become very uh, impolite, uh, even dangerous in some places. So, you know, uh, as I say, my head is off to everyone who is leading in this time. Um, you know, we will get to the other side of this, uh, 
but it is a very uh, torturous journey right now. At the same time, we've got all of this uh, resource coming into schools for the first time in a very long time. You know, the 120 some billion dollars that we were able to get in the American Rescue Plan Act, which I'm very proud about because, you know, that was really a part of what we did in the transition was try to say, how are we gonna bring people back to school and support schools in doing this? Um, in many states, like my state of California, uh, additional resources going in for community schools, for teacher pipelines, for uh, leadership uh, investments. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of um, danger and a lot of chaos that many people are having to cope with. And, and indeed. So, um, so based on all of your work and experience, in education policy, teacher quality, student learning, school design, what do you what do you expect and also hope for in terms of the the future aligned to what we have experienced over the past eighteen months? What I uh, hope for is that um, you know we have been disrupted uh, in huge ways, um, and again, people have been so creative. There's so much creativity going on in, across the country. You know, teachers and leaders learning how to use technology in new ways. I mean, this is the first time that we've had, you know, we've started to close the digital divide. We've had almost every child and almost every teacher, you know, step up around you know the uses of technology. I mean, what an opportunity that is. We have um, really had a come to Jesus around uh, whole child education, uh, and that's not a religious re reference. So, <laughs> yes. but that um, you know people are really aware of and and paying attention to the fact that we are educating whole children here. We're uh, we need to be attentive to, and schools are trying in many ways to be attentive to social emotional learning, to the wraparound services that children and families need. The inequalities that were in the system and have been growing in the system are, you know, came into stark relief in this moment. And, you know, many educators knew about that, but we've now got some social legitimacy in attacking those inequalities because politicians started to pay attention to it too and say, wow, we actually have to help you uh, deal with these inequalities in access to, you know, everything, uh, food and, you know, digital devices and um, uh, the resources that keep families alive and together and, you know, uh, that also uh, allow people to get access to knowledge and learning. So I hope that what happens as a result of this is that we don't go back to the old normal, but that we use the opportunity to really build a, a new system. We inherited the schools we have today in the early 1920s when the scientific managers went around and invented the warehouse factory model school. Henry Ford was the hero of business at that time and he'd invented the assembly line and they said, let's, let's bring the assembly line into school. Uh, and so we created, you know, age grading and we put kids on the conveyor belt and lots of emphasis in those days on prescribed, you know, curriculum, standardized curriculum, teach to the average. Uh, and that also was happening at the time when standardized testing was being invented by eugenicists who had a notion of a bell curve. And you could array everyone on the bell curve. There's a lot of... Um, writings from that time, which make it clear uh, who was supposed to be at the top of the bell curve, who was supposed to be at the bottom, and how we're supposed to uh, put people into different conveyor belts to come out in different places 
uh, at the end of it. You know, educators for 100 years have been pushing back against this design and it, you know, trying to move it into a much more equitable and much more personalized and relational frame. But this is a moment where we could re reinvent it, where we really could think about what we need for the next century uh, to create relationship-centered schools, to create schools that really are focused on how we enable students to actualize their potential, rather than trying to be on this, you know, select and sort uh, bell curve that has been imposed upon the education um, enterprise. I am thrilled to, and our, our listeners will be so uh, happy to hear you talk about this sense of hope specific to what can be because of the challenge and duress we've experienced. I mean, my, 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 my worry and heart goes out to leaders and educators as they are kind of grappling through this exhaustion, um, incredible sense of controversy that they seem to be uh, wading through almost on a daily basis. But my hope is the same, that we actually use the learning that we have experienced to launch us forward and finally be able to do some of the very things that we know should have or maybe could have been done because the opportunity for change is extremely ripe. And so um, I hope the same and for people to be able to hear that from you, I think will go a long way. And the LPI, which by the, for the listeners, the Learning Policy Institute um, issued on this, this major report on restarting and reinventing schools um, during the pandemic. And I, I wanna, let's on the lap, based upon what you just described, why do we need to reinvent schools? And what do you think that reinvention will do in terms of serving students? Yeah, well, I think I started to you know, lay the table for that question in the sense that, you know, we need to reinvent schools because the ones that were invented a long time ago weren't invented for our current purposes. So they weren't invented for, you know, relationships. They weren't invented for actualizing every student's potential. We have had a shift in our national consciousness over the last, you know, century or more, uh, which uh, is that school is not just for, you know, uh, sending kids out to take up their different predetermined roles in society, their predetermined, you know, places in different kinds of occupations and jobs. But it's really about actualizing, enabling learning and actualizing kids' potential. And we know a lot more than we did about how to do that uh, many years ago. So we have to reinvent if we want to achieve the goals that I think most of us came into education to to achieve. And I'll just say I came in as a high school English teacher. I worked in warehouse factory model schools in uh, on the East Coast in Camden, New Jersey and Philadelphia. Uh, and what I realized uh, during that time was that <clears throat> I could not care effectively for the 180 kids on my roster. I, could, I cared deeply, I worked hard. I never stopped thinking about them and grading their papers and you know engaging in the work, but I couldn't be effective in caring for all of those students because I was not in a team that shared a group of students and met regularly to figure out how to teach them. Uh, we didn't have a way that they could be in advisories uh, where uh, I could 
you know, be the connection point for a group of students to their parents and an advocate for them in the school. Uh, we didn't have a, a context within which we could offer tutoring supports or uh, additional um, uh, interventions, if you will, for kids. I had 12th graders who couldn't read. They literally had never been taught to read. I had a standardized curriculum that I was supposed to teach to them that was never going to connect with what they needed. Uh, and so that design was clear to me, it wasn't going to allow me to do what I wanted to do for my kids. Neither did I have enough knowledge base as a teacher uh, to do that because we needed we, we need to improve teacher education in ways that I didn't encounter at that time. So all of that needs you know, to be reinvented. We need to think about all the equity dimensions of what kids are entitled to. We need to think about the dimensions of the teaching and learning process that will engage and motivate and excite kids and keep them uh, with us. Uh, you know, we need to think about the aspects of the system that have to put money in, in ways that are better spent, that are more equitable, that wrap around students to be sure they have the health and mental health uh, and um, social services and nutritional services and so on that allow them to come to school ready to learn. And I'll just mention that in this country, in the United States, and I know you broadcast around the world, but in the United States, we are engaged in aggressive neglect of children as a society. Uh, the level of child poverty far exceeds that in any other industrialized country in the world. And we've said to uh, schools, you know, make up for that, no excuses, you know, uh, and we have to also get a uh, social policy that you know, takes care of and protects children and families. So all of that needs to be reinvented. I think we have right now an administration uh, in Washington. I also work in California where I uh, chair the state board uh, and we have uh, an administration there as well that is really trying to tackle these things. And I hope that uh, in places where that's not yet the case, where you don't have that surround, that that will, um, will happen over the coming years. We're in a moment like we were in the 1930s, like we were in the 1960s, where you know major, major changes can occur uh, because of the crisis we've been through. So this, you know, th this report, and by the way, the uh, one thing I really appreciated about it, the restarting and reinventing schools, you know, learning in a time of COVID and beyond, so much of it, I thought, was truly relatable to the beyond. Right, so there were aspects about COVID, but um, I really appreciate the, the forward look at what we can do in order to move forward. And um, there's just, the, the report was very clear, not just about how we grapple with today's challenges, but what this can and should look like tomorrow. And um, so I appreciate you leaning into that topic. And um, I wanted to ask you about I've recently also spent considerable amount of time on this report, Design Principles for Schools, right? Putting the science of learning and development into action. And by the way, one thing I appreciate about this too, there are so many pragmatic examples given to what is actually happening in schools and in districts, which really help the practitioner. Because at times, sometimes they may read and think, that does sound right. I know it's right, but I don't, just don't know if it's possible within our system. So that stood out very loud to me. So 
Maybe can you just tell us about the development of, of the model and its implications for school system leaders? Yeah, I'd be glad to. And I'm glad you pointed out all those examples. Let me just say, you know, great educators have been doing this work for many, many, many decades. And we have so much wisdom of practice in the field. So many um, innovative, creative leaders who are already redesigning you know, the schools that they're in. So I hope this is helpful to them as a sort of reinforcement for why this is the right thing to do. And I also hope it's helpful to those who are maybe coming into this work uh, anew and looking for, you know, examples. But this came about through a project on the science of learning and development that a number of researchers from um, neuroscience and medicine and education and developmental science and so I came together and said we know so much more about the brain and how it develops about people and how they learn and develop uh, and it is not being used in this you know educational system for the reasons I described because policy has been pushing us in in the wrong direction for a while uh, can we synthesize this so we did do that um, a number of people from you know Harvard and Tufts and Stanford and uh, AIR and different places came together. We sort of said, what do we know uh, if we put it all together? Among the things we know, and then we said, what are the implications for practice? Among the things we know is that, for example, uh, you know, if you're in the nature-nurture battle, nurture really wins out that of, of the 20,000 genomes we have in our body, only 10% ever get expressed. And the ones that get expressed uh, are the ones that are called for in the context that we live in. So experiences, relationships, and context actually drive uh, what who we become. Uh, so it's not true that you know you're born with a certain amount of you know mental capacity. You can be categorized. You know, uh, put kids into little boxes: smart, average, or dumb. You know that that um, somehow uh, we can. Uh, we should give up on some kids or or double down on others because of, you know, genetics. It's not true that there's a math gene, by the way. <laughs> you know, everybody can can engage in this. So that's one thing, that the brain uh, is malleable. Uh, it's also true that um, the kinds of hormones that are produced in strong relationships like oxytocin actually protect the brain from trauma and actually heal the brain and heal our capacity to engage. So even though lots of young people experience trauma, if we build relationship-centered places where they have adults that they can really connect to and have long-term relationships with, uh, for example, in many countries, teachers stay with the same kids for two, three or four years, uh, rather than you know passing them off every year, uh, which allows a different kind of relationship to develop. Uh, if we build middle and high schools so that they have those teaching teams and advisories and places where kids can connect with uh, counselors who know them, then we can really enable them to get past a lot of the uh, trauma that they might experience uh, in the world outside of school. Uh, so there's so many things I could go on and on about what we know about development and learning, but the bottom line is that um, to uh, enable kids to learn in the way they best learn, we do have to uh, understand how to design schools. And so the design principles are uh, divided into five main areas uh, of design. And we have lots of examples of how schools are doing this work to build relationships, to create a positive learning environment, 
in which everyone feels safe, psychologically safe, as well as physically safe, to build rich learning experiences of inquiry and engagement, uh, to ensure that kids are getting explicit instruction in social, emotional, cognitive skills, habits, and mindsets. Because in fact, those things are not a distraction from academic learning, they are the pathway to academic learning. And finally, that we have those integrated student supports that allow kids you know, to be healthy in, in all kinds of ways. So uh, we're excited about it. There's been a lot of uptake uh, and we're uh, eager to work with people who are, are engaged in this. The American Association of School Administrators is taking this up as part of their project for Education 2025. Uh, and uh, you know, we hope it'll be helpful to folks who are on the path uh, and in many cases, way down the path. And we want to know about what you're doing because we'll come study you <laughs> and help other people learn. I think in this moment, you know, educators are doing amazing work. And what we need to do in every era of human history where there's been this kind of crisis, we have to collaborate and share the inventions that we are developing. Uh, and that's what moves us forward uh, as a species, as a human race, uh, and certainly in education. Well, what, and, and for the listener, knowing that what I appreciated about even being able to go online and look into the report is if you look at the model, it allows you literally to hover over aspects of the model and dig deeper. And so if there's one specific area that you know or your school district would be aware of that you're challenged by, you can dig deeper in that specific area and find examples of districts and schools doing that work. I mean, it is, um, it is an incredible tool that um, I, I hope to help spread on your behalf because it is the right thing. And one thing I can appreciate is that it is a comprehensive model that is just really kid-centered. So it does not come across in any way as a particular um, issue related to policy. It's about good practice. And I actually think it's a dilemma that sometimes we have these like, pockets of excellence that we don't know how to capture and learn from. Schools yeah. do incredible work. Yeah. But in the meantime, the narrative relative to what schools don't do sometimes is really loud. So how we can capture and learn from one another, especially mm -hmm. moving forward because we are moving into a new opportunity where we just need to help each other. Schools help need to help schools. Leaders need help leaders. So uh, the, the report and the online version is, is, is awesome. You've done really, really well giving a resource um, to places. So um, much, much appreciated. Thank you. I'm glad you're going to help us try to uh, get it out there. <laughs> it, so, Anne, and I want to go to this report, too. In, in 2018, you and your team published work on preparing teachers for deeper learning. And, you know, there's a series of case studies, um, once again, that are available for writing depth practice. Can you just talk to us briefly about your hope uh, for that work in the future as it relates to preparing teachers? Yeah. You know, I, th I think that um, in your listeners, there are probably people in some of the countries that really do a great job of supporting teachers routinely. I've had the pleasure to visit folks in Finland and Singapore and a number of other places where if you want to teach, first of all, uh, it's free to you. You, you the, the university settings in which you learn to teach are very, very uh, well uh, designed and well resourced. Uh, candidates come in for free. They get the kind of training that helps them understand how people learn and develop. They have opportunities to practice in uh, what you might think of as 
uh, the, the equivalent of the teaching hospital for medicine. They're in uh, professional practice schools where all these practices are being used, where they can see the state of the art, where research and practice are going on together. Uh, and where at the end of you know, the, in Finland, the two-year master's program, uh, in Singapore, typically now also a master's program, uh, people feel really well prepared. And then they go into schools where there's mentoring uh, by uh, senior teachers who are able to help them make the transition into becoming a professional teacher uh, in a child-centered way, right? Because it's much harder to engage in the kind of practice in which you're uh, alert to all of the different needs and experiences of your students in which you're you know, thinking about how to be culturally responsive to their experience bases when they come in, in which you're thinking about their different pathways to knowledge. Uh, it's a it's a, an extraordinary feat. I love to spend time with great teachers because it's it's like magic, uh, but it is very, very, it's, it's much harder as my medical colleagues say, it's much harder than brain surgery. Because you got, you know, if you're doing brain surgery, you got one sleeping patient on the table. <laughs> and you know, you do the things that you need to do to help them with their brain. You know, when you're in a classroom, you've got 20, 30, sometimes even more kids, all of them, you know, needing to acquire different skills in different ways, and teachers are extraordinary. So we try to say, what are programs doing that are able to help teachers learn? How to pursue deeper learning, the kind of project-based, inquiry-based learning that really engages kids uh, and enables them to uh, learn deeply? And then how do they do that in ways that are equitable and promote social justice uh, in schools? Uh, and there are you know, extraordinary teacher education programs who do that as well. And we hope that more and more programs and policymakers, because we're talking to policymakers about this work at the same time, will make those investments so that everyone can come into the profession really ready to do their best work, uh, to do what they hope to do, which is to really transform the lives of children. Uh, I used to remind uh, parents and community often, I would say when it comes to educating uh, children, it, it, it's not rocket science. It's way more complicated. That's right. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and then, of course, I, I would give my pitch as to why. But you're watching teachers. Um, they are artists. And when it is done well, it is, it's almost so hard to capture and describe to somebody who may not understand what that, what that art looks like. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate your respect for the, for, for the position. And I, one dilemma that we have right now is that I can take um, a sentence or a phrase that you've mentioned and want to question you over and over and learn more and more about your perspective. Uh, but I am going to honor your time. Um, but I do need to ask this, and we can, we can end with this because um, we try to stay very specific to time in this show. Our leaders, Unfortunately, I think their heads are down and they're overworked and challenged as are all educators. One dilemma I see is that I, I think that we're missing some capacity sometimes uh, for people to delve into research and um, spend the time that we would hope they could focusing on best practice. Sometimes they're just constantly reacting to the day to day which is actually why we some, we're doing this. These leader chats are about how we provide very pragmatic content on their behalf. Most of our model is not based upon a sit and get. Most of our model amongst our leaders are, it's a round table process. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. where leaders are helping leaders. Without going to detail on that, if you were pretending that you and I were sitting around a round table with other leaders, our leaders that we serve, what pragmatic advice would you have for them right now as it relates to everything that you know and what you know they're challenged by? Yeah. Well, first of all, if we were sitting around the round table, I'd be wanting to get advice from them as well, because <laughs> there's a lot, yeah, they say the knowledge uh, is the room. Uh, that's how we build knowledge together. But uh, the little piece that I could contribute, I would just say that it's important for people to sit back in this moment to uh, have an uh, attitude of grace and self uh forgiveness and forgiveness of the situation that is to say to to not um try to you know engage in quote practice as normal but to take the time to rebuild relationships to rebuild trust to reach out to families to enable teachers to have uh opportunities to reach out uh, to each other and you know to build wellness uh, in every aspect of the school environment. Don't worry about covering the standards. Don't worry about, oh my God, you know, the kids may be behind and we've got to start drilling them on you know, getting ready for the tests. Put all that aside uh, and really focus on how we rebuild the relationships in, in, the, in the school community. Uh, and that, you know, remarkably, when we do that, kids learn more effectively anyway. And they've learned a lot during this pandemic. They may not have learned the traditional curriculum in exactly the way we might have presented it, but they've been learning. We're, as human beings, we're always learning. So taking stock of what we've been through, how we build on it, we've gained strengths. We've gained strengths of resilience. We've gained knowledge about how to use technologies. We've gained all kinds of uh, capacity to think differently about our uh, lives and our institutions. Take that time. Uh, and we're trying to say that to our colleagues in, in California. You know, we've had a disruption of the old accountability system, of the testing system, uh, and uh, it's gonna take a while to reinvent what we want in the way of assessing actual learning in ways that are helpful to teachers, uh, schools, children, parents. Uh, in the meantime, Let's use this opportunity to really build those relationship-centered schools as hubs of the community in which we promote overall uh, wellness and in which we enable very organic, authentic kinds of learning. So, ladies and gentlemen, you just had an opportunity to hear Linda Darling-Hammond um, tell you you can focus on other things other than, quote, learning loss. <laughs> I think it's really important because so much um, anxiety is being spent um, on, on, on actually things that won't serve our kids. That was the perfect list. And Linda, um, I went from being really, really nervous to just being enthralled um, within a couple of minutes of our discussion. I wanna thank you so much, not just for this conversation and uh, supporting our leaders and, and our educators, but um, for the work that you are doing in this country. Um, it it make, makes just a great amount of difference and you motivate a lot of people. And this will be one of these opportunities that, that, that I'll take with me, being able to talk with you like this. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Great to meet you, Jeff. Take and care. You, you as well, Linda. Thank you. So 
ladies and gentlemen, um, I know that you've um, learned just as much that as I have during this conversation. I'm so thankful, of course, for the work that uh, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond is doing in this country. And I just wanna remind all of you, thank you as well for leading and of course teaching in this uh, important, in this important time for our kids. Everyone, be well.